reason I just have to speak on topics I know very little about, I find myself in that situation again this weekend uh, as I talk about wine and wineskins. And you may be relieved to know I know very little about wine. I don't like wine. I don't care for the taste of wine. I don't like wine snobs. And that may be why I don't like wine. But Laura, you know, she's a California girl. She prefers a glass of wine occasionally if we go out to dinner. And, and uh, we were having one of those typical husband and wife conversations one time. She said, honey, you know what would be romantic? And right then, men, you know what I'm talking about. You just kind of freeze because you don't know what's coming, right? She said, it would be really cool. I know you don't like wine. It'd be really cool if you cared enough about me. And that's a setup, right? Uh, to learn what kind of wine I like. And it would be so classy if you could order a glass of wine for me at a restaurant. And I'm like, I don't order your food for you. Why would I order your wine? You know, but guys, you know, you don't even go there. So I just kind of went into observation mode. Like, what kind of wine does she like with chicken? Or if we have, you know, a steak? Or what if we have pasta? You know, what kind of wine goes good with a taco or a hot dog? So yeah, I'm, I'm just kind of, I'm getting it all in. I'm filing it all away, right? And finally, we're dressed up. We're out at a nice restaurant. I've been preparing. And I'm finally at this big moment. And I've kind of baited her a little bit. Honey, what do you think you're going to have this evening? And she told me. And so the waiter comes up. And I can tell right away, he's that, he's that kind of waiter, wine snob kind of guy. And, and uh, I was a little panicked, but I think this is my big moment. And, I said, and he says, ma'am, would you like something to drink? And I said, you know what? She would love a glass of white infidel. <laughs> and the waiter looked at me and said, sir, I think you had in mind white Zinfandel. And I thought, no, what I have in mind is getting up and kicking you all over this restaurant. But I didn't say that because I'm a pastor. I'm a pastor. And uh, so I kept that to myself, you know. So I, I don't know a whole lot about wine. I know, I know even less about wine skins, but uh, that's kind of where we find ourselves this weekend. However, what we're really going to discover in Luke chapter 5 is it's not really that much about wine. It's not really about wine skins. It's talking about what they symbolize, what they represent. But in studying Luke chapter 5, and if you have your Bible, you can turn there. Luke chapter 5, we get an opportunity to get up close and personal with Jesus, the change agent. And even though Jesus, and we often say this, he never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. You're going to see that Jesus Christ is all about change. He's all about keeping things fresh. He's all about keeping things relevant. So Luke chapter 5, if you have your Bible, uh, if you have a smartphone, you can get the, download the Get Hope app. And uh, you can go to the message there, and it will have all the verses we're going to look at this weekend and the main points. Luke chapter 5, let me just set the context. There's a big party going on. Matthew, uh, one of the disciples, has made this decision that he's going to leave his profession as a tax collector and he's going to follow Jesus. And in doing so, he decides to throw himself a going away party so that he can say goodbye to all of his friends who are also tax collectors. But there's a little bit of an ulterior motive. There's a little bit of a bait and switch going on because really what's going on is Matthew wants his friends to meet Jesus because he's thinking this, I met Jesus, he totally just wrecked and changed my life. I really believe if my friends could meet Jesus, he could change their life too. And by the way, there's a great message in that, uh, that one thing alone, that one decision because if we've met Jesus and he's radically transformed our lives, why wouldn't we want to tell everyone in our life about what he's done for us? And that's where Matthew is. And so he decides to throw this party. And as you would expect, there's a mixed bag of people there. In fact, you pick it up in Luke chapter 5, verse 29. It says, a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with him, were eating with Jesus. So you can picture this scene. You've got Matthew, you've got his tax collector friends, you've got Jesus and the disciples, most of whom are callous fishermen, and they're having this party, and there's food and wine and laughter, music. My guess is there's a pinata. Can you really have a great party without a pinata, right? But they have all the elements for fun. The stage is set for fun. 
unless the Pharisees are spying on you. And that's exactly what's happening in Luke chapter 5. There's a group of Pharisees, maybe they're peeping in the window, and uh, they want to know what's going on in this party. And just so you know, the Pharisees, they were the religious snobs of the first century. They kind of saw themselves as the moral police. They were there to keep everybody in line. This is nothing new. This is nothing old. Every church has moral police, right? And they're kind of looking into everybody else's business. By the way, this is what I discovered about the moral police of every church. Every one of them, if you talk to them, they have the gift of discernment. And I couldn't figure out how they all got the gift of discernment. Now, I use air quotes because I don't think they really have it. I think they want to have it. Because, see, if you have the gift of discernment and you're always being nosy and sticking your nose in everybody else's business, you're not really judging them. You're just discerning. See, that's how spiritual, that's how spiritual these people are, right? So they're there and they're discerning what's going on in this party. And it says in verse 30, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belong to the sect complained to his disciples why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? By the way, it's interesting. You'll often see tax collectors and sinners in the same phrase. Why is that? It's because in first century Judea, they were under Roman rule and they hated the Romans. And so the Romans would actually hire Jews to collect taxes from Jews and then turn the money over to the Romans. And so if you were a Jew collecting taxes from Jews for the Romans, you were considered a traitor and you were about as low a sinner as you could be, right? So you'll often see tax collectors and sinners. So they're like, why is Jesus hanging out with these tax collectors and these sinners? And the short answer is, it's just more fun to hang out with sinners than it is with Christians, right? But the problem isn't that they're having fun. Here's the problem you've got to understand. The problem is they're having fun together. Jesus is actually enjoying hanging out with these sinners and these tax collectors. Now there's a similar scene over in Luke chapter 15 verse 1. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners, there it is again, they were all gathering around to hear Jesus. And just like in Luke chapter 5, this crowd, uh, you know, they've made a lot of mistakes in their life. They've colored outside the lines. They use bad language. You know, they probably drink too much and smoke too many cigars and they sleep around and they cheat people out of their money. You know the types, right? But Jesus is hanging out with them. He's interacting with them. He's talking to them. He's listening when they talk to him. He's actually enjoying their company. And about that time, these Pharisees, these religious snobs, they walk up. And their reaction in verse 2, you can see it. This man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. And in their mind, this is scandalous. Now, why is it scandalous? It's scandalous because, see, the very people that Jesus is enjoying are the very people that these Pharisees hate. And they just can't, they just can't figure it out. Now, let's go back to Luke chapter 5. Jesus, if you read the Gospels, you'll see that he refused to be intimidated by these Pharisees. So he responds to their accusation that he hangs out and he eats with sinners. And this is what it says in Luke chapter 5, verse 31. Jesus replied, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And what he's implying there is these people are spiritually sick. These people are spiritually ill and they need to be healed and by the way that's what I do and then Jesus adds in verse 32 I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance in other words Jesus says, hey listen I didn't come to this earth to hang out with the people who think they're righteous I didn't come to hang out with people who think they've got it all together imply you guys I came for the people whose life is a mess I came for the people who understand that there's an emptiness, there's a void, there's a lack of purpose in their lives. I came so that they could get well. I came so that they could find healing. And if you think that these Pharisees left Jesus alone because he put them in their place, then you don't understand the Pharisees. 
That just means sides are chosen, and now it's time to kick off. See, now the real game begins. And so they responded in verse 33, John, John's disciples, and that's a reference to John the Baptist. John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours, they go out eating and drinking. Now, you got to understand, that's a put down. The Pharisees are saying, we're about serious stuff. We're into fasting. We're into praying. We're into studying the scriptures. You guys seem to be into eating and drinking and having fun. But you'll notice Jesus' response in verse 34. Can you make the guest of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? And if you're just reading your morning Bible studies, like, what the heck's that all about? I mean, all of a sudden, they're talking about eating and drinking and hanging out with sinners, and now all of a sudden, Jesus starts talking about a wedding. What is he talking about? Well, you know, another thing we don't really understand are first century weddings. Heck, I don't even understand 21st century weddings anymore. I used to understand them. They used to be simple. A guy fell in love with a girl. They got married. She had one shower. Not anymore. We got any, we got any brides to be in here this weekend? Don't you dare raise your hand, because I'm going to talk about you. Because now when a bride gets married, it's all about the bride. And I'm telling you, the, the whole universe just stops while this bride is getting married. You know, when we got married, you had a shower. Remember those days where you had a shower? Now a bride, I think, has an average of about 16 showers. There, there's, a, there's a lingerie shower, a linen shower, a pots and pans shower, a towel and throw rug shower. There's a spoon and fork shower. Uh, there's a meat and cheese shower. I mean, there's a shower for everything. And it's all about the bride. The groom just shows up, Right. That's a 21st century wedding. If we understood first century weddings, we would understand that the statement that Jesus made about the bridegroom, because in the first century, guess what, brides? It was really about the bridegroom. They kind of took cues from the bridegroom. That's unheard of, isn't it? But it would go like this. A couple would get married in the first century, and they would have a ceremony. Not that much different than our ceremonies now. But then they would have a reception. And the reception, see, the receptions I go to is like, hurry up and cut the cake so I can go home, right? Because I get tired of watching white people try to dance. And so it's like, I just, I, just, I just want to go home. But in the first century, the reception lasted for up to a week. And the family that was hosting the reception had to make sure that there was lodging for all the guests, and there was food for all the guests, and there was wine for all the guests up to a week. In fact, there are cases on file where families were sued because they ran out of food and wine during the reception. And now you understand in John chapter 2, when Jesus is at the wedding in Cana and his mother Mary comes up and says, we need some wine. We're out of wine. Turn some water into wine, right? That's why Jesus, he performed his first miracle. It was actually a big deal. So that was it. And, and sometime during this reception that would go on often for up to a week, the bride and the groom would then, without saying anything, without any fanfare, without any rice being thrown, without everybody lining up, they would just sneak away. And they would make their way to the bridal chamber and they would begin their new life together. But as long as the bridegroom was at the party, see, everybody was cued off the, bri the bridegroom. As long as he was at the party, there was eating and drinking. But when the bridegroom split with his bride, see, the party was over. So if you're on the dance floor dancing and you look around, and all of a sudden the, bri the bride and the bridegroom's gone, that meant it's over. You got to go back to work. You got to go back to life. You got to go back to reality. This is what Jesus is saying in Luke chapter 5 to the Pharisees. Hey, dudes, I don't know if you noticed or not, but the bridegroom's still at the party. I'm right here. I haven't gone anywhere. There's no reason to fast. There's no reason to pray. There's no reason to look pious just yet. Look at verse 35. The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. In those days, they will fast. In other words, it won't be long, guys. You don't have to worry about me. I'll be gone. I'll be nailed to a cross. And when that happens, when that takes place, you won't see these guys partying anymore because the party will be over. I'll be gone. And then Jesus tells them a parable. He tells them a story, verse 36. 
No one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise, they will have torn the new garment, and the patch from the new will not match the old. And so Jesus said, let me just tell you something practical. If you take an old garment that's torn, and you take a new piece of material, and you put it on that garment as a patch, Jesus says, there are a couple of problems. First of all, it's not going to match. Second, the first time you wash that garment, what's going to happen? The new material is going to shrink up, and it's going to tear away from the garment. But understand, verse 36 really isn't talking about garments and patches. That's not what it has to do with. It has everything to do with the Pharisees. This is what Jesus was saying to these Pharisees. You're committed to the old. You're committed to tradition. You're committed to the way things have always been. They majored in history. They majored in tradition. They majored in self-righteousness. These Pharisees, they could quote the Bible. They could quote God's law verse by verse, word by word. And if that wasn't enough, they had added over 600 rules of their own just to God's law, just to the Ten Commandments. For example, one commandment says this, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And this is what it meant for the Jew. From 6 o'clock or sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday, a Jew could not work. They were to set that 24-hour period aside and rest and reflect and worship God. That's what it was for. We have a principle of the Sabbath where we rest and we reflect and we thank God for what he's doing in our lives. But for the Jew, it had to take place from 6 o'clock Friday afternoon to 6 o'clock Saturday afternoon. That's all Jesus, God meant by that. Set it aside for me. The Pharisees, they didn't think that was, that was clear enough. So they actually, for that one commandment, came up with 39 rules of what it looked like to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. For example, you couldn't carry a needle in your robe on the Sabbath because you'd be guilty of carrying around a needle, therefore you would be working. You couldn't wear a brooch around your neck on the Sabbath because you would be carrying that piece of jewelry and you would be working. You couldn't wear your artificial teeth on the Sabbath. You had to gum your teeth on the Sabbath because it would be working to put them in and out. You couldn't wear an artificial limb if you had one on the Sabbath. If your sandals were shod with nails, you couldn't wear those sandals on the Sabbath because when you walked, you would literally be guilty of carrying nails. Therefore, you couldn't wear those shoes on the Sabbath. You couldn't walk across grass on the Sabbath because if you broke a blade of grass, you would be guilty of cutting the grass. Therefore, you'd be guilty of working on the Sabbath. They came up with 39 rules like this. Now, why would they do that? It's because they wanted everybody to know what it meant to be pious. They wanted everybody to know what it really looked like to be self-righteous. Here's the problem. They were old. Jesus was new. And Jesus was saying this, you cannot match something old with something new. And then you finally get to the new wine in verse 37. And no one pours new wine into the old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. So Jesus says, if you were to take new wine and put it in an old, brittle wineskin, eventually the fermentation process is going to begin. And when it begins, that bag's going to begin to bulge, and it's going to begin to stretch, and it's going to eventually rip like an old, dry, rotten balloon. Jesus says, no, you don't do that, verse 38. New wine must be poured into new wineskins. And you got to understand, <laughs> when the Pharisees heard that, it made them very, very nervous. Do you know why? It's because they had already had enough encounters with Jesus to know that he really wasn't talking about wine, and he really wasn't talking about wineskins. They knew it was just an illustration. They knew that Jesus was comparing them, the Pharisees, 
to these old wineskins. That's exactly what Jesus was doing. He was talking to them and he was saying, listen, hey, listen, your old traditional skin of Judaism, it is not going to be able to contain the new wine of my gospel. It's not going to be able to contain the new wine of the message that I'm bringing. It is going to tear it up. It is going to split it apart. You see, Judaism was all about the Old Covenant. What's the Old Covenant? It's the, it's the Old Testament. It's the book of Deuteronomy and Leviticus, you know. It's about the laws, the priests, the animal sacrifices. It's about all the rules, all the regulations. Thou shalt, thou shalt not. Jesus says, I'm bringing a brand new covenant. What was his new covenant? Well, it was based on things like grace and freedom and mercy and forgiveness. Things like compassion and hope. It wasn't based on rules and regulations. This new covenant was going to be based on a relationship with God made possible through Jesus. And here they are listening to Jesus' new revolutionary message about grace and freedom and mercy and forgiveness and compassion and hope and this relationship idea. And they realize all these things that Jesus is talking about has nothing to do with following old laws, old covenants. It has nothing to do with rules and regulations and thou shalt and thou shalt not. And they realized that in this illustration that they were dry and stiff and inflexible and they weren't going to be able to handle it. So this new wine of Jesus Christ, it's ripping their secure little world apart. What was the problem? They liked old. Jesus says, I'm bringing change. I'm offering something new. Now, Today, it's not old wine and new wine. That's first century stuff. Do you know what it is today? It's the freshness and the vitality of new ways of getting the job done, new ways of doing ministry with people who would rather stay and remain in the safety and security of the past. And that's what I want to talk about for a few minutes. As I said earlier, I don't know a lot about wine and wineskins, but I've been pastoring for almost 35 years. I know a whole lot about security. I know a whole lot about tradition. I know a whole lot about people wanting things to stay safe and, and the same, but you got to understand, when you adopt that attitude, it is absolutely deadly. So a couple of very significant truths jump out at me from this story as it relates to us and as it relates to our church. Here's the first one. God is a God of freshness and change. In the story, that would be the wine. And you got to understand, this wine is new, it's vital, it's sparkling, it's fresh. It's ready to fill new skins. But for it to fill the new skin, see, we've got to remain. We've got to stay flexible. We've got to be open to the idea of change and being relevant. And I know that makes some of you nervous. Heck, I get your emails. I know it makes you angry. So let me just put your mind at ease. God never changes. He's immutable. That's one of his characteristics. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Got to understand, God is no different in 2015 than he was in 1915 or 1415 or AD 15. He is the same forever. But you got to understand, the way God goes about his business, the way he does things, they are always fresh, always new, always relevant. And if you don't believe that, just check out the Bible. I made a list. The Old Testament talks about a new song, a new heart, a new spirit, a new strength, a new covenant. The New Testament talks about all things becoming new. We've been, we're new creations because we've been given a new birth. We're told to live by a new commandment. We're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth. I mean, it's very clear. God is a God of freshness, newness, change, relevance. Now, why am I talking about this? 
Well, the Apostle Paul wrote a little letter to a church at Ephesus. We now have it in our Bible. It's called the book of Ephesians. And this is what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Be imitators of God, therefore as dearly loved children. This word imitators in the Greek literally means mimic. So Paul says imitate God, mimic God. And think about it this way. If God is a God of freshness, if God is a God of change, and if we're going to fulfill this command to be imitators of God, that means we're going to have to stay fresh. We're going to have to stay flexible. And I'm going to be honest, that's where the rub, uh, the rub, the problem, the challenge comes. Because I've discovered this. I've discovered that the longer we follow Jesus, the longer we're Christians, the more we tend to tighten down the lid on our faith. Because just by our very nature... We want to conserve. We want to protect what we have. We want to maintain it. We kind of develop the attitude. It's worked for years. It will continue to work. By the way, this isn't anything new. Go back to the Old Testament. Do you remember the time when the people were in the desert and they were being bitten by the serpents? And they were dying and they were miserable and they were in their tents just dying. And God said to Moses, make a bronze serpent, put it on a pole and lift it up. And everybody who looks at the bronze serpent will be healed. Did you know that hundreds of years later, they were still dragging that bronze serpent around? Hundreds of years later, they worship it. They offered incense to it. In fact, according to 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 4, they even gave it a name. The name was Nahushtan. That's the Hebrew word, Nahushtan. You know what it means? Piece of bronze. Piece of bronze. Finally, God says, it's a piece of bronze, you knuckleheads. It's done its job. Get rid of it, right? And we laugh at that story and say, those silly Hebrew people. But how many thing in, things in our lives do we hang on and we refuse to give up just because they're sentimental? Are there security blankets? Are there just our preference? And here is God. He wants to pour out some new wine. He wants to do some new things. But he can't because we just want to hold on to the bronze serpent, the past. So if we're going to mimic and be an imitator of God, we've got to stay fresh. We've got to stay relevant. We've got to stay creative. Here's the second one. New wineskins are essential, not optional. This is not an option. And I say that because by nature, most of us are maintainers. Once we get a set way of doing things that we like, we want to keep it that way, don't we? I mean, statistics have shown for years, 10% of us are innovators. You know, we like change. Bring the change on. The more change, the better. And then about 80% are like, well, I'm not really crazy about change, but if you can, if you can show me the facts... And you can show me the logic behind the change, I'm all in. Then 10% of you, you're not going to change even if Jesus were to stand up here and say you need to change. Right? You're just going to be stuck in your ways. Kind of reminds me of the church I grew up in. It never, ever changed. It did the same thing forever. You could only use one Bible in our church, King James only. Thou shalt, thou shalt not, thee, thou, all the King James English. You sang out of the same hymnal. We never changed hymnals. You couldn't use a guitar, drums. You had, you know, you had the big pipe organ and the piano. Men wore suits and ties to church. Women wore dresses. You weren't even allowed to wear pants in my church. You women would die if you had to go to my church, right? We sang the 45 stanzas at the altar call every week. People always email me, why don't we have an altar call? Probably because I get a rash when I even hear the words altar call. Because, <laughs> see, we went to Sunday school, Sunday morning, choir practice, youth activity, Sunday night service. I mean, it was an all-day affair. And Sunday night, you know, the preacher really cut loose. And he would preach and preach and preach. And then we'd do the 30, 40 stanzas of just as I am without one plea. And he would stand down front and sweat and cry and say, I want to let you go, but God's telling me there's one more person who needs to come. So let's sing it one more time. And, you know, we're in the aisles doing rock, paper, scissors, rock, paper, scissors. Who's going to go? I went last time. Somebody's got to go or we're never going to get out of church, right? 
So we'd go up and be the sacrificial lamb so we could go home, get out of church, right? And we laugh at my church, and thought, wow, the silly church stuck in the past. Let me ask you a question. How about when we try to change things around here? Like the music. Oh, it's quiet now, right? Oh, yeah, well, that's just not fair. I know. And you know what I hear? I hear from people, well, you know what? It's just different. It's not the, you know what? They, I don't know them and I just, I don't know their heart. I don't know if I can trust their heart. I, can you really be that excited about Jesus? You know, and, and you know, I told Laura, I said, wouldn't it be simple if you could pastor a church and, and people just trusted my heart? And like, I wouldn't have him up here. I wouldn't have these guys up here if I didn't know their heart. That would be the good old days. But since that's not possible, I decided this is a great weekend for you get to know Trey's heart. So Trey, would you come on out here? I want, I want to interview Trey. Get on out here, boy. And uh, I want you to hear his heart. Okay. You'll notice Trey has the very cool worship pastor hairdo. And when you go to school, they have a haircutting class, Hair 101, how to look yes. like a worship pastor. And uh, you have to have that. But uh, Trey, uh, just uh, why don't you share a little bit of your background? Because people might be surprised. They may think you just got up one day and realized, Bob, I can really get rich being a worship pastor. That, yes. No, that's yes. not really that's how it Sleeping happens. at a Holiday Inn. But uh, give us a little bit of your journey, how, do you, how you got to this oh, point. Man. It all um, started with my mom and dad. Um, I was thankful and grateful enough and so, so thankful that I was born into a family that loved Jesus and was, grew up in the church. And, um, and my, my dad was a music director and his dad was and his dad and, and uh, my mom's side of the family all grew up in the church and they all sing and everyone in the whole family sang. And it was so amazing that if you couldn't sing, they're going to give you to another family. <laughs> There's just no place for if you can't carry a tune. Um, and it was through that watching my parents lead worship. I got to travel with them in different states, um, and they would go lead worship. They'd go to churches that wouldn't allow certain instruments. They were kind of cutting edge. They were breaking new ground, you know. Um, and by watching them, they have this, they have this story that I'm going to be sharing. As a story, I was three and a half years old the first time I actually led worship. They were in an auditorium getting ready to lead, and they're off side stage praying before they walked out. And they start hearing this kind of roar from the crowd. and like, what is going on? So they peek over, and they kind of notice me. I'm, I'm up with my guitar, and I got my foot on a stool, and I pulled down the mic, these old gooseneck mics, and I started singing, I go to the rock of my salvation, I go to the, I don't know if you ever remember that song, but that was the first song I ever led at three and a half years old, and they looked around, I was like, we can't follow that, we can't do that. <laughs> um, so I wish they had iPhones back then where you could take video and I'd see pictures, hey, that was cool. But anyway, um, but just watching that, and my mom and dad, they led me to the Lord when I was six years old. And it's been a journey from there. I sang in choirs. I was always in church. But it was something I always did. I didn't do it. was something you didn't do. It was just like getting up in the morning and brushing your teeth or eating breakfast. And it wasn't until around, I was about 13 years old. And I just remember there was just night after night at that age, I would just lie in my bunk bed really close to the ceiling. It'd be dark. And I'm just staring at the ceiling. And I just remember just saying over and over again, it's like, God, just use me. Just use me. Just use me. I just wanted to be used. I didn't know what it meant. And then at 15 years old, I had a pastor take me out to, to lunch one day. And he says, Trey, I don't want to scare you, but God wants to share with me something for you. And it's like, it's, he says, there's ministry in your life. And I just want to plant a seed. Nothing else. Not to force you, just plant a seed. And I remember going back home and telling my mom, and she's like, oh, that's so awesome. And I'm like, I don't know what that means. I don't know what that means. What does that do? Um, and so then I decided to, to study music in college and study classical music. 
which is great. They try to force you to sing opera and sing Italian and all those other things. I was having problems speaking English and I had to sing <laughs> Italian. I didn't know what was going on. I was all confused. Um, and through that journey and then getting a chance one summer of being able to lead worship at this whole camp all summer, as about 4,000 students went through, and seeing these kids just with this passion as you would just lead and them singing to Jesus, it just struck me. And I was like, you know what? It took me back to those moments of being with my parents and traveling. It's like, this is what I want to do. And I didn't know what it was going to be like. And after I got married, you're working all these other jobs, trying to work in the ministry in the church, or you're working full-time, whatever. I just knew at that time, I was like, I just want to be obedient. It's like, God, I'll do whatever it takes. If it means I got to work this job forever just to be able to go lead these people, I will do it. So it's almost, I mean, God's obviously had you on a specific journey. In fact, your parents are leading worship at a church up in Danville, Virginia, just as we talked this weekend. So they're still involved. So God led you here. And uh, I'll never forget the first time I was, was riding sand with Laura. And Laura said, hey, I want you to hear a song. And it was the song that you wrote that we've been learning. There's nothing like the name of Jesus. And, and I heard you performing that and singing that and I'm like oh my goodness who is that guy and then I got to meet you and the first time I met you it was as if God just kind of put our hearts together and and I just sensed an incredible passion for God and leading people in worship so what would you say your vision is here for hope about us becoming a church that is a worshiping congregation going before God I love it I think the first time we came in here I was like man I love the hearts here and it starts with our pastor I mean he's our shepherd of this church and and your heart just spills out into everyone else. And the way you have led this congregation is absolutely incredible. And walking in, you can feel it. And I was like, man, the music is great. It's awesome. And I remember God saying, it's time, it's time to bring the fire. It's just trying to drop this in, just the Holy Spirit, to take it to another level, to be more than just here and with your heart of changing even Raleigh and outside of that. It's to be that outside of that. And it starts with that. And it, and it starts with something my wife shared with me. And I don't know if you know the redwoods out in California, these huge trees, right? And uh, she shared this devotional, and she said at one point they were trying to maintain all the fires out there. We've got to preserve these trees. Well, over time, they realized by preserving it, there's been no new growth. And so what, what they found out is that the natural fires that would happen would actually prepare the soil and would burn off all the dead debris and all the stuff that's so preparing it. And then the heat, the smoke that would rise high would then drop um, the pine cones down onto the floor. And then from that heat in the fire, then from the pine cones, the seeds would be able to pop out of the pine cones and then land into the soil. And since from the fire, the soil has been prepared, the seeds have a way to drop in and to germinate. And that's what it is with us. As we come in here and shout together, this is all together. All we're doing is just striking a match, and here we go. But all together, as we're one, we're calling in the Holy Spirit, the fire to fall in here. And it's preparing our soil, our hearts. So then when Mike comes up here and brings the bread, brings the water, the truth of what God has, and it begins to drop seeds into our prepared soil so that it begins to germinate. We begin to change lives outside of these walls and become infectious on and on and begin to do that together. And we become unstoppable in this place. And God takes center stage. That's what it's all about. We want God to take center stage. This team is amazing. And there's nothing that brings our hearts anywhere closer than when we're with each other together, shouting out with one another and leading that and doing all styles of music, reaching out to all people and doing that in this place together. And uh, I'm excited. I, I'm, I, I'm super no, I, excited we would, we would never about know. We'd what never we're going to do here. And um, I'm super thankful, crazy thankful. Well, we're so glad. We're so glad that God led you here. I know that literally there's hundreds and hundreds of churches that tried to get you and would love to have you, and God laid it 
on your heart to be here, and we're excited to see where God's going to take us through you. Thank you for being here. Let him know how much we appreciate him and his wife, Emily, who's here leading worship. Now, let me just say a little bit about change when it comes to stuff like music. I don't know if you realize or not, but I moved here as part of a gospel quartet. When we started this church 21 years ago, we sang Southern gospel music. I mean, like Gaither Homecoming, old style. Like if you're in the wake in the middle of the night and you can't sleep and you see the infomercials and, and, and yeah, the, there's two crowds listening, usually dead and deader. That's what we, now, can you imagine if 21 years later we were still singing I'll Fly Away and on that great getting up morning, fare thee well, fare thee well, and candy cootie woody, yes, he candy cootie woody, and he did. And, and you, don't, you think I just spoke in tongues, but that's actually a song, a song we used to sing, right? Now I realize we all have our preferences. I get that. We all have our fixation. Webster says a fixation is an unhealthy or excessive preoccupation or attachment. And there's not a person listening this weekend that doesn't have a fixation. We all have that bronze serpent we want to hang on to. The problem is this. We can get so enamored with our fixation. We can convince ourselves what I like is the best. What I like can never be improved upon, right? But God may want to do something altogether new, altogether fresh, but we don't want to go along. We don't want to change. Why is that? It's just more secure the way we've always done it. It's just more comfortable. Plus, hey, that's the way I like it. But this is what I want you to understand. Most of the time, it's just a bag. It's just a wineskin. It just holds what is significant. It's the innovation. It's the change that keeps it fresh and vital and creative and new. So new wineskins are essential. Uh, I'll never forget a few weeks ago... Um, I was here, I wasn't speaking, I was on my break, but I was here on a Saturday night, and we had a rapper. And I remember, I was sitting right back there, when the rapper came out and I heard him begin to rap, and he's just rapping the very words we've been singing, right? When he began to rap, I thought, this is so cool, oh no, I'm going to get the most incredible emails. And I did. You would have thought we invited the Antichrist to be here on stage with us, you know, the weekend we had the rapper. I mean, it's amazing how people responded. And uh, by the way, rapping's not new. It's not new. It's been, around, it's been around for centuries. Rapping used to sound like this. Though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil. It used to sound like that. It was called chants. Or what have you done with the incense pot? Left in the alcohol is too dang hot. See, that's just rapping. It's, it's, just, it's just a new, it's a new beat and all, right? So uh, the week after the rapper, I ran into a couple. And, you know, they're, you know, they're probably in their 50s. They've got high school and college kids. And... Uh, we had dinner, and his wife said, she said, we had a rapper in church. And I'm like, oh, no. And she said, it was awesome. <laughs> and her husband, who's a pretty conservative guy, he says, yeah, no, maybe not for me, but I got to tell you, man, if you're in high school or college, that had to be so cool. Now, take that response versus another response I would get. Well, I'll tell you what. It's the old people who give the money. Don't forget that. Now, let me just tell you something. You're a Pharisee. You're saying, I give the money. You better make me happy. Wow. Compare that to an attitude that says, isn't it our job to prepare hope for the next generation so that it will continue to thrive and be healthy? A few weeks ago, I met with 20 African-American couples on a Saturday morning. And the topic was simply this, how can we become more inclusive as a congregation? And they were so gracious, and they were so kind, and they had such incredible things to say about Hope Community Church. But this is what they said to a person. This is what we tell our African-American friends when we invite them to Hope. You're going to love it if you can just get past the music. Right? Right? 
But I think how funny it is that we think that the music has to be just for us, right? So, you know, either we're going to be a community church, which means we have to have diversity and variety, or we're going to have to change our name to Hope Middle-Aged White Person Church who likes only classic rock. That's going to be our new, that's going to have to be our new church name, right? We, we just have to get over it. It's always going to be changing. Let me ask you a couple of personal questions and I'll close. Here's the first one. Is the wine still fresh or are you living on wine from the past? In other words, what God is doing in your life today, is it sparkling? Is it bubbling? Is it enthusiastic? Is it exciting? Or do you have to go back to 1990 or 2003 or 2013 to remember when God last did something amazing in your life? I'll give you a test. When you get together with your church friends, maybe a small group, do you find yourself spending a lot of time talking about how good things used to be? Do you start a lot of your personal conversations with, uh, do you remember when, you know? Don't get me wrong. I think it's great to reflect back on what God has done in our lives, what he's done in our church. I think it's great we celebrate. But see, here's the question. What's he doing today? What's new and fresh in your life today? What's new and fresh in your, our church today? Where is God stretching you and me like he's never stretched us before today? What do you say we stopped talking about the good old days when our church was small and everyone knew everyone and the music was perfect, you know? Let's stop talking about the good old days and let's start talking about the great new days. Because, see, we live in a society that wants to know... Does Jesus Christ address the issue of today's world? They want to know this. Is the church still relevant? Is the wine still fresh? Do you know why a lot of you are here this weekend? It's because the church you went to lost its relevance. And I think there's just something natural about us. It's kind of like when people move into our neighborhood and we don't want anybody else to move in our neighborhood. And we don't want to expand our neighborhood. Our neighborhood's perfect now because I'm here and it's just the way I like it. So we don't want any growth. That's the way we can be at church sometimes. Now that I'm here, it's just the way I like it. Let's not mess it up. We just can't do that. Let's forget about the good old days. Let's focus on the great new days. Here's the second question, and now it gets a little personal. In your life, is the wineskin still flexible? And what do I mean by flexible? Well, are you open to change here at Hope? Are you willing to adjust and adapt? How about in your own personal life? Are you willing to risk? Are you willing to trust God and walk by faith? Or is it going to be a wrestling match between you and God every step of the way when he wants to do something new in your life? Now, I'm just going to give you a heads up. If it's a wrestling match, he's going to win. But see, if it, if it, if it takes 40 years for God to get you to see things his way, you may miss your moment. You may miss your opportunity. I mean, if you're 107 and finally decide, oh, I think God wants me to work with middle schoolers, it may be, it may be too late, right? Right? You missed your moment. Plus, it is just so much more fun to give in early. Give in early. Let me tell you something. I don't care what age you are. God may have a plan for your life right now with it absolutely blow your minds if you could just get a glimpse of it. But it probably means that you're going to have to be open to something new in your life. Understand, Jesus is the master change agent. He is all about new wine. He is all about something new and fresh. So commit your life to making a difference. I challenge you, when you walk out of these doors this weekend, you be the change God wants to see. You be the change that you want to see in this world. God gives you permission. 
And when you do that, who knows what new and fresh thing God may have right out there for you with your name on it. But you're going to have to be open and you're going to have to be flexible. Let's pray together. Father, thank you just for the reminder this weekend that Jesus, although he was the same yesterday, today, and forever, says, I'm bringing in something new, and you've got to be ready for it. You've got to be ready for it. And Father, it's so easy for us to, to get into a mode where it's just about us. We like a certain kind of music, a certain kind of teaching. We like a certain way to park. We just like to do certain things certain ways, and we forget, as Ryan reminded us at the beginning of this series, that you have a heart for the lost. You didn't say, oh, there's 100 sheep and 99 made it back to the fold. I can lose one. No, it's like there's still one out there that's lost. And Father, I, I think what you were trying to tell us through that parable is we always have, a, have to have a mindset of going after that one lost. As long as there's one lost, we have to go after them. And Father, help us to understand we are not going to reach today's world with the methods of last generation or the generation before. That your word never changes and your message never changes. But our methodology has to stay current or we will become irrelevant. Father, get us to the place where, as Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, we cannot look just for our own interest, but we'll begin to look out for the interest of others. And when we get there, <laughs> we'll realize that we're seeing growth and maturity in our lives. In your name we pray, amen.